This episode is part of the Business 101 series, featuring faculty and collaborators of Lundquist College of Business at the University of Oregon. So many of these students have no intention of being finance students, but what I explained to them is, A, finance can be fun because you can apply it to fun concepts, and B, even if you're not a finance student or you don't plan to work in finance, you're going to have to deal with people that work in finance. Welcome to 101, the podcast with a quest to know and enjoy the 101 of everything. Each week, we talk with one professor and dive into their 101 class, starting with the basics and moving beyond into stories, cutting-edge research, always seeing why each topic matters so much for our lives. I'm your host, Troy Campbell, an assistant professor here at the University of Oregon. And today, we dive into the 101 of time value. Our professor is Stephen McKeon, a finance professor who's an expert on investing, valuing firms, and assets. He's been the chief financial officer for a winery, been involved with drones, many startups, and now heads a new investment group. His classes are known for the way he brings energy and simplicity into very classic lecture style, with a class discussion that often uses metaphors and silly but useful examples, like how to invest in asteroid mining. Outside of the class, Steve McKeon is known for how he lives, building towards having a small winery on his property, always evaluating the utility in his life properly, and throwing great but very efficient parties, including his infamous one-hour party. In today's pod, we talk about the time value of everything, from stocks to asteroid to skills to jobs and relationships. How do we value things over time? And we get into the specifics from wine to Bitcoin and even companies who are run by risky pilots. Also on the pod, I ridiculously try to explain financing asteroids. And in Drinks After Class, editor Alec and I talk about how to invest in daily life from education to latte to friendship. So let's get into it as we dive into the 101 of time value with Professor Steve McKeon. Hello, I'm Troy Campbell, and I'm here with Professor Steve McKeon. So let's just get into it. Steve, what is the time value of money? Thanks, Troy. Time value of money at its core is a pretty simple idea. It's just the idea that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. What makes up this simple but rich concept? Sure, we can really boil it down to two things. The first is the idea that something today allows us to uh, make use of that thing over the next period, and so that's more valuable to us than getting in the future. For example, if we take a dollar and we receive it today, we could put it in the bank, we could earn some interest, and one year from now, it would be worth more than a dollar. So that's clearly more valuable to us than receiving one dollar in a year. The second component is the idea of uncertainty. So when somebody says, we'll give you a dollar in a year, there might be some uncertainty as to whether that's actually going to happen. And so that makes it worth a little bit less than a dollar today. One of the things that I often go through in my class is just how similar things like stocks and bonds and annuities are. And so, you know, let's start by just kind of defining those things in broad terms. All of them have to do with an investor providing some amount of capital now and expecting some additional capital, so the amount they put in plus some return. But ultimately, this idea of time value of money always boils down to 
If you're trying to make a decision about allocating some money today, so say making an investment in a company, really boils down to how long is it going to be till you get your money back and how confident are you or how certain are you that you are actually going to get your money back with a, a return that's appropriate for the level of risk. So you understand all these finances, Steve. Why are you not a billionaire if you know so much about money? That's <laughs> a good question. So I remember reading a quote from uh, Mark Cuban that said, effectively, the fact that he had become a billionaire was a matter of luck and being in the right place, right time, and you know, getting some breaks that went his way. Now, he said he's relatively confident that he would have earned a substantial amount of capital, so maybe he would have become a you know, uh, somebody with a net worth in the, in the millions or perhaps tens of millions. Uh, but the fact that it actually turned into billions was, was a matter of luck. Now, I think also the other thing, the other way I would answer that question, you know, you've heard this phrase, money can't buy happiness. You know, people who have studied this find that that is actually false. Money can buy happiness, however, only up to a certain point. There's some baseline figure where at that point you've got your basic needs taken care of, and the idea is that more money past that will bring you some additional utility, but we have this concept called diminishing marginal utility, which means you're getting less and less happiness for each additional dollar that you earn. There's also some research out there that you know shows that people often get this wrong in their life, is that people will means maximize, is that they'll, they'll try and get more money without thinking about how they're going to actually spend that money. Now, this is not happening with everybody, but it's easy to get caught up in this uh, concept of mean uh, maximization. So that deals with sort of our elephants on the forehead. Uh, let's move into sort of your story. I graduated right at the height of the tech boom, the first tech boom, um, late 90s, 2000. And I found my way up to a winery in Napa Valley called Greenfield Wine Company. And... Long story short, uh, I kind of rose up the ranks there and eventually became CFO of that winery. And I thought, well... So you're the chief financial officer of a winery. That's right. So it, that's pretty it, cool. It was, uh, you know, it was very odd because it happened relatively young. Again, I guess going back to this sort of Mark Cuban comment, there was definitely a degree of luck, right? So uh, I like to think of luck as partly preparation meeting opportunity, but there's no question that... It, there was some luck involved to become, you know, the CFO of a large Napa Valley winery in my mid-20s. And that's really where I, you know, fell in love with finance. And I, I thought about the things that I was seeing in person that maybe didn't match up with um, theory that I had been taught. And that that's kind of what, I guess, planted the seeds for me wanting to potentially do finance as a, as a research topic and, and make that my career. Left my job at the winery. Went back to school at Purdue University and got a PhD in finance and then started here at University of Oregon in 2011. You've also done, been involved with some non-normal uh, academic things, including jobs and some sort of academic uh, connections into the business. Can you just speak to those really quickly so we can get a full picture of Steve before we enter his classroom? I had some students, for example, in 2012. Uh, that wanted to start a drone company. So I ended up starting a, a drone software firm with them called Skyward, uh, mostly helping them so with... You're, the, so you're working on drones in 2012? That's right. So wow, this was, you have always been at the cutting edge of hip, sir. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can't take uh, I can't take credit for the idea. That was definitely Jonathan's. But I recognized, you know, that that it was going to be a thing. I guess, and this was before you know Amazon and Google. So not many people were talking about drones in 2012, other than military applications. So they actually had quite a bad reputation at that time. But yeah, no one was doing it. And this is exactly sort of getting at sort of what you're seeing is you are seeing something that is going to have value in the future that is unappreciated by the current marketplace at this time. That's right. And that experience, so Skyward eventually acquired venture financing, uh, went through several rounds, and a- actually just uh, a few months ago was acquired by Verizon. Yeah. So it's it's such that interesting thing, you know, we talk about so much. You're academic you you went into the world because of academics but then the world makes you more interested in academia and just this uh incredible you know whirlwind and back and forth of it such that there is potentially no divide between academia and the real world and that they're sort of just um when done right just contributing to each other yeah let us um dive into your class and the class we're going to dive into um is your core class uh, that uh, you teach this core financial class to MBAs and undergraduate, but let's dive into that MBA class. Tell us about this class. As many of you know, MBA program is a two-year program, and when they just arrive, they arrive from many different backgrounds. This really adds a lot. So, for example, first year I taught, there was an Olympian, and she had just gotten back from London. There was a helicopter pilot who was flying um, air ambulance on the weekends. Uh, there was, you know, I've had students that were baseball players in the Boston Red Sox organization. I've had actors from Second City in Chicago. It's just an astounding variation. The format is primarily lecture, so I'll have a topic. You know, we'll go through slides, but I really like to make it interactive, right? So it, it turns out people have studied these things. Uh, somebody standing up in front of the room and talking at you is actually not a very uh, great way to absorb information, it turns out. Yeah, but it makes makes the person talking feel so good about themselves. (laughs) That's right. Well, if they're listening, it does. That's for sure. (laughs) So can you you start with your your volcano class, the the thing that people remember and look forward to? Because I've heard some things about how cool the way that you design this uh, interesting project, even sometimes having almost like a sci-fi feel to it. Yeah, that's I, I would say to the extent I have a volcano class, it's probably this capital budgeting project. I try to pick something uh, that's just sort of entertaining, right? So the, the actual setting doesn't matter. You're just trying to get them to use this time value of money concept. So one year evaluated Peter Diamandis's uh, planetary resources, which is where they'll go out to space and sort of lasso an asteroid and bring it back to Earth for all the precious metals. So, so people are coming into a finance class and like writing this balance sheet that they're going to find out. And you're like, all right, guys, let's figure out how we could soundly financially approach harvesting asteroids. You know, finance can be fun. Finance is often thought of as a, a dry subject. So that's, in, in fact, I would say that many of the students in the core class come into the class not expecting to like it. Yeah. Which and there, and there lots of people who are coming into a core class aren't necessarily, they're MBAs and finance may not be their thing. So many of these students have no intention of being finance students. But what I explain to them is, A, finance can be fun because you can apply it to fun concepts. And B, even if you're not a finance student or you don't plan to work in finance, you're going to have to deal with people that work in finance. You know, an appreciation for finance is going to help you advance your goals, even if your goals are not directly 
financially related. The following is the introductory assignment for Steve McKeon's Finance 101 class. Don't try to do the math, there's Excel for that. Just listen on. Houston, Houston, we need a balance sheet. Hello student, I'm Dieter Pyadamus, a parody name we can't get sued for, and I have a project for you. I want to mine asteroids. Recently, I paid McKinsey millions of dollars to do evaluation on my project, but for some reason, they forgot to do a balance sheet. And now here you are, my only hope. I need you to help me. There's no one left. McKinsey won't return my calls, and Elon Musk recently died in a Hyperloop accident. Will you be able to take this project on? I see you nodding. So here's how it goes. My goal is to figure out whether my planetary resource project is a financial viable option. My goal is to just make even, not a profit. The timeline for the proposed business is as follows. In year one and two, we build a spaceship. Years three through seven, the business would go into full operation, collecting asteroids full of platinum and bringing them back to Earth. Year seven, I plan to sell back the spaceship to NASA at the price it costs to make, and then quickly go do something else. So I only need to break even, and there are no future assets of the company, create an unrealistic timeline to some degree, but making it great for an introductory assignment. I also need asteroid baskets for about $10 million each. Bonus points for coming up with a better name than asteroid baskets. Repeatedly entering the Earth's atmosphere tends to take a toll on the baskets, so they are only expected to last five years before they are worthless. So once again, you don't have to worry about the valuation of this item after the project is done. Now here's where the math is going to actually get hard. The current price for platinum is about $1,500 an ounce. For every ton of asteroid, we get about 64 ounces. The plan is to pick up one asteroid per year after the spaceship is built, so we'll have five asteroids in total. The first asteroid is estimated to be 1,500 tons, which each additional asteroid, we will get a little bolder and better and ambitious and will increase the size by 10% from the previous one. Here's a problem. Flooding the world market with platinum is likely to have an effect on prices. The consultants estimate the price of platinum will drop 20% with each additional asteroid that is brought back. Now, I don't care about a profit because I'm out of the market in seven years, but I can't flood the market so much that I don't make any money to fund the project as I'm doing it. Oh yeah, and then of course there's tax rates, operating costs, and a fixed maintenance cost per year once the spaceships are flying. That's in your packet. Plus, after you make the balance sheet, I need you to provide sensitivity analysis for some obvious boring things. Like, what if flooding the market with platinum decreases prices by 50%? What if a battery is invented so we don't even need to use fuel? Or some cool things, like what if a spaceship explodes? Or what if Stark Industries and Wakanda from the Marvel Universe team up to build a synthetic vibranium that reduces the price for us? What if Elon Musk comes back from the dead, it's possible, and builds a battery spaceship that mines twice as many asteroids as we do, making the price of platinum drop? I need to know everything. Or wait, no. My advisor Steve McKeon says I can only ask for five hypotheticals because that would take away from your other class time. So I want five! Help me student one week into Finance 101 who's actually majoring in sports business marketing. You are my only hope. Wait, were you already able to do it? I see you nodding. Houston, we have a balance sheet. So, um, 
can you get in a little bit sort of of the nitty gritty to a bit about sort of how we would think about an asteroid and a financial sound approach to that and some of sort of the general basic things that we think about with a company, whether it's balance sheets or budgets or assets um, and these things that seem so crazy, I know, to like anybody walking into finance class, but then when they just see a balance sheet, they're like, oh, I get it. I, I can do this. It's I have to make this column be larger than that column. That's right. So I guess, you know, using the asteroid example, or, or really any of these examples, what you have is you need to measure the cash inflows and outflows, right? So there's usually a large outflow in the beginning in order to get the project going. And then as you begin to sell whatever the good is, maybe that's some precious metals from an asteroid, maybe that's tickets on your Hyperloop or whatever else, uh, sort of revenue stream you have, those would be inflows that happen later in the project. So the first step is you line all of those things up, and that usually requires a spreadsheet. Uh, and so you've got you know, measurement, I guess, of the inflows and outflows. And then the second component is once you've analyzed the, the amount and the timing of these inflows and outflows, you need to discount them. So if it's five years away, it's not as valuable as if it's three years away. And so you need some sort of a discount rate, uh, which again, we've got models to kind of come up with what that discount rate should be. Um, but you use that discount rate to discount everything back to today, and then it's simple. You take all these different streams that are happening over all kinds of different years, you discount them all back to today, and then the easy part is you just add them up, and you try to figure out if that's positive or negative. And if that's positive, we call that a positive net present value project. And that's something you want to pursue. And I think it's interesting when people sort of start putting out these budget sheets and stuff is it leads often to this experience of constrained creativity, this sort of wonderful experience where you're like, oh, here's the constraints of this project and what I have to do. And even though this feels like it's it's this nitty gritty that you have to get into it and it's so constraining and annoying, it often is the time where you have these incredible insights because you're so specific and you're so into the situation it provides this constraint which research often finds uh, can lead to more creativity it's actually liberating once you've built these models and it shows you exactly what levers you can push and pull to build value in your business right so once you've got this thing built capital budgeting model you can play what if. And that's really, in many ways, that's actually the most valuable part of these models is kind of playing around with them. You know, we'll often call that sensitivity analysis. And we'll say, all right, well, it doesn't work the way we've laid it out, but if we increase sales by this much in this way, then it's going to work. Or alternatively, if we cut our costs over on this particular dimension, then it would work. And you've got all, as you said, you've got all these different constraints uh, that you're sort of working with simultaneously. Uh, but the model allows you to alter these things one by one or several at one time and figure out kind of the, the what if. So what if we do this, would it work then? So let's talk about this one word that you mentioned. What is a discount rate? And how do we understand what forms a discount rate? So a discount rate is all about this idea of uncertainty. You've got something like GE, so a very large, uh, stable company with relatively stable cash flows and stable projects. And then you've got 
a startup drone software firm, right? So lots of uncertainty about what the future cash flows are going to be. Maybe they're going to be high. Maybe they're going to be low. Maybe the company goes bankrupt. You don't have any idea, right? right. So the so idea- it's like you could have a little indie film made by some comedian on Comedy Central called Get Out, and that seems like it may be a hit or may not be a hit. It's really uncertain. Or you could have another Marvel movie, and there's a different uncertainty levels on that. That's exactly right. So say that you were going to buy some stock in each of these companies. So you buy a little bit of stock in GE, you buy a little bit of stock in the software, the startup software company. And then, so, so you, say you bought an m- amount of stock where you, you do your projections and, and you would kind of expect each of them to generate about $1,000 of value next year. Well, the idea is you're pretty confident GE is, in fact, going to generate that amount. And so you wouldn't discount it. You would discount it some because there's still some uncertainty. But with the software company, it could be 1000 or it could be 5000 or it could be zero, right? And perhaps you have uh, higher probabilities on those, those events other than the thing that you expect. In that case, you're going to discount it more heavily, right? So in a sense, those cash flows from the software company are worth less to you today than an equivalent amount of cash flows from a place like GE because you've got more uncertainty revolving around the software firm. And you're able to calculate those discount rates using models and also some acquiring research and understanding. That's right. So we measure a very specific type of risk called systematic risk. We measure systematic risk and then we use something called the capital asset pricing model. So that's called the CAPM. And that is one way to come up with a discount rate. Uh, Is there anything else you want to throw out about your uh, classroom? So I often tell students that, you know, the reason I studied finance in some ways when I was a college student is because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew that I could apply finance to everything. And that's really been the case through my career, right? So I've applied finance to uh, making wine. I've applied finance to making software. And although there's differences between those industries, the fundamental concepts of inflows and outflows and measuring cash flows and discounting them back is pretty similar from industry to industry to industry. And so it gives you a lot of latitude to move around. So we got a class. We're planning things about asteroids. We're learning about finance. How are you bringing your research uh, into the classroom? And what does that look like? So part of the reason that students would go to a major research university like uh, University of Oregon is because the people that are uh, up in front, so the research professors, are really at the cutting edge in the sense that they're trying to answer questions that aren't answered uh, as of yet. So I, I really think this is a source of value the research professors can can bring into the class. You know, one of the topics we talk about in uh, this core class is the idea of raising equity. So this is fundraising, and it's applicable to large businesses, to small businesses, whether it's venture capital, whether it's issuing um, equity on the public equity, uh, public stock markets. Um, there's lots of different ways firms raise equity. And so I actually wrote my PhD dissertation on this idea of raising equity through employee stock options. Essentially, one of the things that I found was that this is actually a huge source of equity capital inflows for companies. And so then when I teach about how do firms raise equity, I can point to the results I found in my own research that shows how important exercises of employee stock options are. 
Another quick example is that one of my current research interests are crypto assets. So you may have heard... Crypto assets. That sounds intimidating. It, it does sound intimidating. And actually, there are elements of it that are pretty intimidating <laughs> from a technological standpoint. Just kind of wrapping my head around everything has been has been a challenge. But the, the one you've probably heard of is Bitcoin. Have you heard of Bitcoin? I, I ha- I'm familiar. Bitcoin is the one that everybody's heard of. It turns out that actually there are hundreds and hundreds of crypto assets, right? So Bitcoin is really just, um, it's actually not even nearly the most interesting one oh. in a lot of ways. It so there's the press. The, it does get the press. It certainly was the first one. It was revolutionary. It is the largest one by network value. Um, but you've got a, maybe the second most widely known one is Ethereum. There's a very new one called uh, Tezos, and, and the list goes on and on and on. What's interesting is many of these are are what we call application tokens. So these are things that actually sort of mimic businesses, but they're set up very differently. They're not a C-Corp or a partnership or an LLC. It's really just a protocol. This is one of the most fascinating uh, sort of segments of finance right now because it's changing the way we actually think about an organization and how value gets transferred between investors uh, and users um, and income generation and so on and so forth. And so this is something that I can bring into my venture capital class because many startups today that are working around this technology called blockchain are in fact raising capital through what are called token sales or initial coin offerings instead of raising venture capital. So it's actually become... So, so companies are using Bitcoin crypto cryptocurrencies to start businesses? That's right. So technically, they're not companies. They're considered protocols, but you could kind of think of them like companies. They are building a specific piece of software for, for a specific reason, and they are selling basically access to that network, and that is providing the funding... Uh, for them to build this thing in the way that venture capital has traditionally provided that type of capital. So it's just a it's just a fascinating aspect of finance right now. And it's something that I, I can definitely bring into the classroom. And um, because so much is unknown about these things, uh, it really results in a, a really lively discussion with the students. And so you can also bring some of those uh, those fun research projects that you've done. Not that those others are not fun, but uh, you had this project on risky pilots and CEOs. Uh, what was that about? Yeah, this is a great example of something that I observed as a practitioner when I was a CFO at the winery that I later pursued as a research idea. So one of the things I noticed is that you know, the CEO's sort of um, risk tolerance, so how comfortable they were with taking risk, really impacted the way their businesses were run. We worked with, uh, we, we did a lot of services for other businesses at our winery. So I got to observe a lot of different C- CEOs and CFOs um, from all kinds of different companies. So when I became a professor, really actually when I when I started in the PhD program, we started thinking about, I was working with another student uh, named Matt Kane, we started thinking about, you know, if we could measure how risk averse or risk tolerant a CEO is, I wonder if we would see that come through in the corporate policies. 
So the thing we found was um, piloting small aircraft. <laughs> so, so then what we did is we took all the pilots and we said, you know, how do they run their companies? And, uh, it came through in virtually every policy we looked at. So they took wow. on higher leverage, they acquired more companies, and they had more volatile stock returns. So getting towards here, towards the end of the podcast, uh, as always, I like to end with a couple sort of general questions. And one question is, so how does finance and understanding finance and understanding concepts of uh, the time value of money help the world be a better place? I think on a personal level, you know, you talked about this idea of time value of everything. So let's take an example of um, your education, right? So your education can be viewed as an investment, effectively, you're investing in your future. And so, you know, m lots of research has shown that you're going to generate more income in the future. Uh, and so it makes sense to spend some money now on your education in order to reap the rewards for many years to come. It's also the reason why getting a degree in your 20s uh, might be more valuable than getting a degree in your 60s because you have more years from which to reap the rewards of that investment. And obviously, you don't want to take out the wrong loan or go to the most expensive university possible when you don't have the the funds at that situation. Uh, but yeah, this if I acquire this skill now or if I acquire this position now, think of what that is going to provide me over the rest of my life. I always find it just so interesting how I'll be in a situation now, uh, you know, as an adult, and I'm using something that I learned as an, an elective in high school um, because I took that elective and I thought it would be good to know that technical skill or that uh, skill in journalism. And then here it is, and I, I get to use it, and it just kind of rolls out over and over and over in time. And and it doesn't always have to be about money, as you said. So think about investing in uh, a PhD. So do you know? I did my PhD in my 30s. It's a hugely expensive time um, to do it because typically you've got higher income in your 30s, and so there was a huge opportunity cost uh, in order to do it. But I didn't do it necessarily to generate more income in the future. I did it to generate more utility in the future because I really just wanted to be a professor. I wanted this career. And that was a cost I had to bear in order to do it. So it really does come down to sort of time value of everything. So to transition into one last topic, let's talk about MBAs and just generally business education in general, since you're so involved with it at the school. I know lots of people understand sort of what an MBA is of a two-year degree, but they don't understand sort of often what an MBA looks like. And it, an MBA is one of these very intimate um, uh, graduate degrees. When it's done right, it's the, it's a nice blend of hard skills, but also learning how to think critically, but also kind of learning how to interact in groups. So I often will tell students that, you know, some of what I'm doing is really just to put them through a shared experience, right? And the idea that I actually want them to struggle, I want them to struggle together, and I want them to kind of learn, you know, what are maybe considered softer skills. So this isn't like building a spreadsheet to do a DCF analysis, but these are more like, how do I know what to do when I don't know what to do, right? So how do I approach a problem, perhaps in a group, when I'm not sure how to get started? And that can be an intensely valuable uh, skill once they enter the yeah. business and world. And how do I work with someone who has a completely different vocabulary, right? You have the, the helicopter pilot 
um, the ambulance helicopter pilot talking to the former professional baseballer, talking to the former comedian. Yeah, I tell my students that too uh, at times. Like, I'm going to put you guys into groups and I'm going to have you guys to do a, a very, very quick, difficult brainstorming session. And yes, this is supposed to be difficult. This is not just supposed to be fun. And there's there's a piece in education right now that, you know, academia is often becoming this entertainment. We want a TED Talk every single moment. We want to watch a funny video every single moment. We want to joke every single moment. And with teacher ratings, they often lend into that. Having that idea, you know, that, you know, academia is a difficult experience. And the point of being in these classes is not always to be happy. And the greatest skills sort of that you can ever learn in life is how do I keep succeeding and keep going through this when I don't like doing this. And so, and no matter what career you're going down, whether you are following your most passionate career, you're going to have that moment where there's something that is not feeling enjoyable to do and you just got to fight through it. So this term that's often used is uh, grit or persistence. Mm -hmm. And I often tell students, you know, I've seen it just firsthand when you work with startups, you know, there's lots of things that contribute to your success, right? So you know, being really smart is a contributing factor. Maybe if you um, have a wrench, uh, wrench uncle and they can provide resources, like maybe that's a factor. But really, if you think about all these things, um, grit or persistence um, continually uh, are rank up there as the most important thing. So the idea is like, you know, I always tell them like everyone in this room is smart enough to succeed, right? You don't have to be Einstein to succeed, but what is going to set you apart is execution, right? So the idea that uh, this grit, persistence, kind of working through difficult things is really what separates top achievers in business. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of your professors out there, <laughs> I think that, you know, we are people who got through it because of our grit, right? We got through PhD programs and many other people, postdocs and masters amongst there. That are, this is just very hard. And, you know, we love education and we love knowledge, but we, we personally all know what it takes to get to your get yourself to a job that allows you the things and the rewards and the utilities uh, that you've always been wanting. All right, so we've gone on a journey now into your classroom, talked about what the time value of money was, which is? Just this idea that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future. And we talked about how there's these words out there, bonds, annuities, and stocks. And even though they are confusing um, sometimes and uh, do refer to different things, they sort of generally are the same concept, which is? This idea that all of them are an investor providing capital to a company and then the company repaying them. And so with a bond, we call that repayment interest, and it usually occurs along a, a, a predefined fixed schedule. Uh, whereas with a stock, we call those repayments dividends, uh, and those can happen uh, sporadically and they can change over time. And we got into more and in understanding sort of these interesting ways in which finance happens, which are, um, one you talked about, our employee options, which are? Employee options are a form of compensation where the company gives the employee the right to buy some shares of stock at a fixed price. And we talked about that other interesting way in which finance is occurring now through that scary term of crypto finance, which is? 
the idea that uh, many, much of the intermediation of the transfer of value uh, can be handled by distributed network using cryptography. And we thought about the idea of how to understand an investment specifically with a company and thinking about all the attributes that might make it uh, an uncertain investment or a more certain investment using the example of a CEO and their, their risk personality, uh, which your research found that CEOs that enjoy taking risks outside the office might lead their companies to take more risks as well. And we also understood this general principle around the time value of everything and to considering sort of our own investments to think about it in the long term and what it means for us. So thank you very much, Steve, for bringing us into your classroom. Sure, Troy. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me. Awesome. It was wonderful to have you on. So, Troy, just looking back on the podcast, I mean, we, of course, have this idea of the time value of money. But I think what's a really interesting idea that was also brought up is this time value of everything. Yeah. So that's what I loved about this this podcast. And when we were sort of planning out what was he going to say about the time value proposition, I wanted this idea that came through our conversation. It's everything. Um, so. I'll say to you, Alec, what are you investing in right now other than the fact that you're investing in your education? Yeah, so I guess that's a big thing, especially because, I mean, I'm not from Oregon. I mean, I relocated to come to school here. From cool Colorado. From cool Colorado and uh, relocating somewhere. And, I mean, college itself just as a very transitionary period where you want to try out a lot of new things. You want to, you know, go to clubs, uh not nightclubs, maybe nightclubs, <laughs> but actual academic clubs too. Just kind of test your interests. Just kind of wade into a lot of different waters that you might not think you wanted to do. And, you know, you find out you really enjoy. I mean, that kind of happened with me. I changed majors from pre-med um, going into journalism. So, I mean, just... Yeah. And I think we can get into some of sort of the dichotomies of how people think about this is with college exploration as investment, I think is something that lots of people sort of miss in when they think about investment. They think of investment as I'm going to put my money in a place, I'm going to put my time and be there forever, rather than seeing the idea of jumping and going between little clubs um, and trying out this thing or trying out this class just for a single day or a single night as part of the investment process that leads to the time value of everything. Definitely. Is is there is kind of this wait to have yourself figured out by the time yeah. you get to college or even before you get to college is like you should know what you want to do, you know, where you want to be. Yeah. You have to have this five-year plan. And because you have to have that five-year plan, it's like we know college is so important. So we like have this idea that you really need to invest in college, but we get in this incredible narrow view of what investment is, which is stand in one place for four years. Yeah, and you kind of talked a little bit too about the money side too when it comes to investing in your higher education. Yeah, so if you think of the time value of everything, if you invest a dollar now, it's worth more in the future. If you spend a dollar now going to college, that is going to be much more costly in the future. And people are always sort of running to these places to throw down 40000 dollars a year. So many people, or so many people are throwing down $5,000 a lot, and that's a lot for them. And it's this because this idea that we have to have ourselves already figured out, I think, is we like this university is worth this money because I believe that I've already figured myself out rather than um, people like yourself 
um, uh, who took a community college route for the first couple of years, or myself, I actually went to the University of California, Irvine, believing that I was going to be a transfer and using it as a low cost place because I got a scholarship there to start out my education experience and actually used it and used it as an exploratory place and found the amazing psychology department there. And then, Troy, you also kind of just to narrow it down a little bit, you'd also spoken on just kind of this time value of everything, especially with more personal things in your life. So one of the things people often don't do is they just don't invest in people. They don't invest in the people that they love. They don't invest in their friends. It's it's sort of obvious, but we don't think about it. Yeah, and especially, I mean, I hate to kind of use this example to death, but in, in college, the idea, I mean, for me, moving away from family, moving to a place where I didn't actually know anyone prior to coming here, you know, you kind of reevaluate your relationship with your family and, and just everyone around you, you really start to understand, I guess, your own preferences, but then also the distance from it kind of real, makes you realize how you treat people, how you react to other people, and how, like you said, how much you invest in other people. Being away from somebody you love really teaches you how to care for someone and that you do need to invest. It sort of, it strains you and it it highlights how difficult um, relationships are and that they need maintenance. And it also shows you how you potentially can maintain uh, your own relationships, even if you are in close proximity with those people. And then one of the last things is it's just investing in very simple skills. So whether that's how to use Excel a little better, when I learned HTML when I was younger, I was like, this is annoying, but then found so many uses for it throughout throughout my life learning how to make a certain type of food better, learning more about what healthy foods are, are overlooked. One of my favorite things to do, even now after living in Eugene for so long, is I just go for runs in places I've never been in Eugene. And that can be me running by a shopping mall that I've never been or a, or a suburb that I've never been. Um, and just finding all these little spaces around Eugene, which then has these payouts over time because now I know the perfect place to go for a picnic or, oh, we need this food and this is the perfect place or it's this type of day and it's this hot outside. I bet that balcony next to the Euphoria store is the best place to go get an ice cream. Alex smiling, thinking of those (laughs) delicious Euphoria chocolate. Yeah, and especially in the age of social media, this question of the time value of everything I think is even more crucial um, in a time when it's really easy to in moments when you're walking or when you're sitting on the bus or waiting in line to just open your phone and open up social media and kind of use that to waste away these smaller moments like you're saying. All right, so we've been talking a long time. Let's end with this. Uh, what, Alec, are you going to be investing in in the net, in the foreseeable future? Well, one thing that I – you know, in the past year have started investing in is podcasting, ironically enough. <laughs> Um, as someone who didn't really listen to any, I mean, I guess it was a couple of years ago, uh, I just started going for walks every now and then and just listening to podcasts. And that has turned into something that's a great hobby of mine. So trying to find something that's similar to that would be to, um, but just noticing the people around you and especially as a journalist, um, trying to find stories around you and just kind of observe the people and you know, the stories that are always going around you constantly. I mean, I think that's something that would really help pay off. Troy, what are you looking so to invest in? I've been invest. 
That's a way too long style podcast host thing. Um, uh, so I'm going to be investing in stories. Um, so I really like taking the time uh, to read short stories that are famous throughout time. One, it invests in the immediate enjoyment of it. But it's just a way if you become familiar with uh, the stories that are important to different people, whether it's the stories in, from famous literature, which allows me to then have better conversations with uh, the humanities people on campus, or whether it's the stories told from rappers like Kendrick Lamar, um, those allow me to have conversations with other people. And just being so familiar with those stories as they always come back is a good story you will never forget because life will remind you of it and you will approach life with the memory of that story that's a touching note yeah yeah to contact 101 hit up our host troy campbell directly on twitter at troy h campbell or email him at troycamp at uoregon.edu at the time of recording we have not finalized our social media names so this is our temporary point of contact we look forward to your thoughts corrections ideas for future episodes or whatever else you'd like to chat with us about the 101 podcast is produced by faculty and students at the University of Oregon's Lundquist College of Business and by the University of Oregon at large. The views and opinions expressed are those of the production team and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of Oregon. The music of 101 is Open Flames by Blue Dot Sessions and Deviate by Poddington Bear. This has been an episode of 101 from the University of Oregon. Now we're smarter. <laughs>